Hey, welcome back to E-Crime Bites. We are now in season two. So season one was kind of like our first year at college. We learned a whole bunch about how to edit, talk, record, audio, video, all sorts of stuff. So in season two, now that we've got that under control, we're going to just be concentrating on the content here. And this is one of my more favorite cases that I've researched. And I'm calling it the Silk Road Dark Web Thief, James Zong. And one of the reasons why I picked it as our first case for season two was I made an E-Crime Bites nibble on it a couple months ago. And when I posted it at the time, I thought to myself, I was like, hey, I never heard of this. I'm so surprised this case didn't get more airtime in the news. So I made a nibble on it and I posted it out there and I had audience people to say, I can't believe I've never heard of this. And I said, this is a great case to make into a full episode. So here we are. Well, and it's yeah. a great case for a lot of reasons. But um, one of the things I've learned is one of my very good friends at work uh, has her PhD and uh, she did her dissertation on cyber criminals and learned that uh, people who are exceptionally good cyber criminals tend to be exceptionally deep on the autism spectrum. So uh, that res now, that being said, her theory is everybody's on the autism spectrum and history will tell you that some of our most uh, important and famous um, game changers in history are also probably on the autism spectrum. So I say that not with any twinge of negativity. In fact, it's usually positivity. But anyway, that's one of the things that I picked up on this case immediately and that'll kind of make more sense as we get deeper into the episode. Yep, and I want to just do one very quick update before we jump right into the case. And let's see, I could probably even put this on the screen for our video viewers. Just wanted to thank our latest review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, Go Figure Skate said, entertaining, great show. I don't know who Go Figure Skate is. It's not me. It's not one of my friends that I know of. I just want to say, first of all, say thank you. And you have great taste. I can tell already. And we appreciate you listening to our podcast. So um, we hope that season two will keep you just as interested this year. All right. So with that, let's get back. Actually, let me show you a picture of the individual we will be talking about. And kudos. So this, kudos for the great picture. That is a fantastic picture. <laughs> yeah, it took me a while to find one. When I found one, him holding a beer bottle like this up, I was like, this is awesome. And then I did some more research, found out he liked cocaine and he liked Cheetos popcorn. And I was like, this is gonna make a great title slide and here you go. So you're gonna find all these symbols in this title slide actually relate to this case in some way, shape or form. And this is James Zong. He is the individual that's the criminal in this case, but I can almost guarantee by the end of this case, you'll probably be kind of cheering for him, especially when you find out how easy the hack was that he used to get all this money. Okay, so with that said, I'm going to jump right into our case details like we usually do. And I'm going to start with the technology. Now, we're going to be talking about the Silk Road Dark Web Forum. And we got a little more language up front. If you haven't heard of the Silk Road, don't worry about it. Right now, while we're just giving you the bullets, just think this is a place where people can go buy things like drugs on the internet. And it's on the dark web and it's a little bit different to get to than your normal website, but we'll talk a little more about the Silk Road in a few moments here once we get through our um, 
our case details. Yeah. And the, now, I'm sorry, Ben, go ahead. Oh, one thing I want to point out, and I'm not going to spoiler alert you here. I'm going to make you wait. This bug is probably one of the most simple, absurdly simple bugs that I have ever seen. And you're going to see that James Zong exploited and walked away with 3.4 billion. And I say billion with a big B. It's just amazing. So stick around and listen to what this bug was because literally anybody could have done this. Anybody. Yeah, I mean, I feel like you kind of, you know, don't bury the lead, but you kind of gave away the plot there too, Jones. Um, <laughs> Uh, because it does tie to the crime, right? So the crime yeah. here is very simple. It's a single crime, essentially, of wire fraud. I would also argue it's theft, but I think wire fraud is kind of baked into that. But the reason why what was such a simple crime, but you know, either did or should have made so much noise was the sheer amount of money involved, at least theoretical money. You are talking about crypto. Yeah, in the criminal in this case, like I said, his name is James Zong. He... At the time of the crime, he was 22. And we'll set that up here in a second. So I'm just telling you that because he was a young individual when this crime happened. Um, I know we've been talking about people's in their 40s and so forth. So we're back to the young, to the young group, yeah. <laughs> the young group exploiting computers. And uh, that's, that's actually, in my experience, m much more typical that you see um, younger offenders in cases like this. Right. And the victim here, or the victims rather, would be basically the entire um, community of the Silk Road dark web market. Now, um, keep in mind, that's probably a place where illicit or illegal activity is mostly conducted. So, you know, you may want to factor that in from a sympathy perspective. So why do we pick this case? I'll say it again. Most people did not hear about this case. When I ran into it, I, I was very surprised I hadn't heard about it. And when I did research into it, I was even more surprised that I hadn't heard about it. So it's a really, really interesting case. So um, that's that was number one reason why I picked it. And the second was when I read the research and I was kind of like, go James Zong. It was a different feel to the case than the other cases that we had in our season one, where it was kind of like, you know, Dr. Shitbag doing terrible things you kind of almost cheer for James here and it just had a different feel to it. So that was the other reason why I picked it. Now I do want to tell you, we're going to try something a little different in season two. So in season one, what I heard back from friends, family, and audiences, the long episodes are kind of hard to sit down and listen to all at once. Me personally, that's how I listen to podcasts. So that's how we started out, but we're listening to our audience. So I started thinking about this and I said, how could we still be we need to go deeper into cases because it's hard to even talk about a case without talking about the details. So there's going to be time involved. And the best I could come up with is let's split episodes in nice dividing lines. And in this case, I right now I'm calling them acts, ACT acts, because I'm not really sure what to call them. I don't want to call them parts because we did that last season. And what we're doing in these acts is we're kind of setting up different scenarios. So the first act here is going to be basically James Zong getting his feet wet and doing the crime. And then our second act is going to be when the law catches up with him. And then the third act is going to be once he gets into the court system. And we're going to try to split these across sort of like mini episodes. So that way you can listen to one of these and have it be succinct. And then when you're ready, you can then pick up the next mini episode and continue on with the case. And 
Hope you like it. If this doesn't work or if you do like it, please just give us some feedback and we'll try to work with it accordingly. And with that, I'm going to give the floor to you now, Seth, because our act one is obtain fat stacks, which I know is a favorite term of yours now. Yeah. So the inside joke is at a previous episode, I said to Jones, what is a fat stack? <laughs> which was very illuminating for my lack of street smarts. So yes, act one, obtain fat stack. Um, so Silk Road was an online darknet black market, right? So in operation from around 2011 to 2013, Silk Road was used by numerous drug dealers and other unlawful vendors to distribute massive quantities of illegal drugs and other illicit goods and services to various buyers and really also to launder all things that are passing through it. So it was really a very, very um, comprehensive laundering marketplace for bad guys and bad things. So in 2015, uh, following a frankly groundbreaking prosecution um, by his office, uh, the Silk Road founder, a guy named, guy's name is Ross Ulbricht, was convicted by a unanimous jury and sentenced to life in prison. So it's got a and pretty uh, dark um, background. And remember that name, because Ross's name is going to come up yes. later on in terms of James Ong. So we're giving you this background to kind of tie the pieces together later on in this story. Right. So if we switch gears and we say, who is James Ong? Well, let's meet him. Back in 2012, when this happened, what Seth was just setting up with you with the background of Silk Road, he was 22. He got his bachelor's of science in computer science and university of Georgia. He was arrested for cocaine in 2017. So already, you know, this dude loves to party. Yeah. I also want to note that in 2012, yeah, let's, let's pause. I mean, this is one of our favorite pictures ever, uh, that Jones is now sharing. Um, Fantastic picture. So I do think it's interesting though that in 2012, you know, which is a solid 11 years ago now, I think Bitcoin was way more um, obscure and way less understood by, you know, the market, what it could be. I'm still not entirely sure of how it's really supposed to be used, frankly, and I work in this industry. So in 2012, I think there was just way less knowledge and understanding of the dark web and certainly of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. But Jones, keep me honest on that assumption. Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not as big as it was now. That was, I would say, more in the early adopter phase, the 2012. Yeah. Um, we're going to talk about, I don't want to do a spoiler here, but James was involved in Bitcoin prior to this in 2009. And that was even earlier adopter. So right. he made some money in Bitcoin in 2009. So you can imagine 2012, some people knew about it, but it's not like it is today in 2023. I mean, everybody knows what crypto is. It was kind of newish back then. Yeah. So in September of 2012, Zong executed a scheme to rip off the Silk Road of money. So how did he do this? Well, the government says that he did this in over 140 transactions in rapid succession in order to basically trick the Silk Road system into withdrawing more money than he put in. And I'm not gonna tell you the bug yet. I'm just telling you what the bug let him do, <laughs> okay? So you're still gonna have to hold on and figure out what the bug is. It's so absurdly simple. But what he was able to do is put in X amount of Bitcoins. Let's just say it's five. 
just to be easy here, five Bitcoins. And when he put in five Bitcoin, he was then able to then go out and say, I want five Bitcoin back. So then you can imagine he got all his money back. And then he goes, I want five Bitcoin back. And Silk Road gave him another five Bitcoin. And he goes, I want another five Bitcoin back. And it gives him another five Bitcoin. And he never deposited. So as you see, the trick was, is he deposited some money, but the system would let him take out the money thinking, you know, he's giving you the money back that you put in there. But it didn't stop. When he kept asking for his money back, it kept giving him his money back over and over The system over wasn't marking a debit and a credit process in a one-to-one -one basis. And that's how he made his money. And you're going to say, what bug allowed him to do this? And you're going to have to stick around because it's absurdly, absurdly simple. So what he did is he did 140 transactions like this. And he did this back in 2012, which Bitcoin back then was not worth what it is worth today. And you're going to see because he got Bitcoin back then and hung on to it, he made some, some serious, serious dough. Okay, so a couple more details. Um, Zong, when he would do this, what do we call it? This hack, I guess. When he would do this process of pulling out more money than he was owed, he usually would fund accounts between 200 to 2,000 Bitcoin. And when I got into the research of this case, immediately I was like, how does a kid at 22 have 200 to 2,000 Bitcoin in order to put into the Silk Road to start this hack. That part, I couldn't get over that part. That that really bothered me. I did some research into it, just in case you're wondering the same thing. I did some research into it, and the reason why he was able to do that is because he was an early adopter of Bitcoin. He was doing the mining back when mining didn't really cost you much money. And he would mine and get Bitcoin, lots of it. And because he had lots of it, he then used it in this hack against Silk Road. So, when I kept seeing all this stuff about a kid being 22 and the dollar figures being thrown around that he's going to be able to pay him bond later and so forth, this is the reason is because he is already wealthy before this hack. He already has some serious dough before this hack. All right. And a couple more details. All the people could tell from the outside at this point before they did any analysis on the system to figure out exactly what he did was that he would, you know, do this hack that would give him more money than he was owed but then he would then transfer out of silk road and basically into things like bitcoin mixers and so forth that we talked about in season one to attempt to anonymize yourself when you have cryptocurrency and you're going to see it doesn't work totally for him because obviously he was caught because we're talking about him now on e-crime butts okay so that's some background right you know about the Silk Road and you know a little bit about James Zong. This is 2012. Let's fast forward five years. And we're doing this to give you a little more background to figure out why this case is so important. So we're talking about 2017, right? For anybody that holds Bitcoin at this point, anybody, James Zong, you, me, if anybody had Bitcoin, there was a split in Bitcoin where basically if you held Bitcoin, you would then have that Bitcoin, but then you'd have another set of Bitcoin cash. Um, if you're familiar with stock and you've ever heard of a stock splitting and you have two shares of the same stock, kind of the same thing. So he now in 2017, once he got all that money from the Silk Road, now basically owns more by doing nothing 
because the Bitcoin split in 2017, giving him even more money. So now let's fast forward four years. Okay, so let's flash forward to much more modern times. This is November of 2021. How did the law catch up with James Zong? So while it's not clear from available court documents, we believe it was probably through blockchain analysis. So we've been reading the pleadings here and uh, the court documents state that Jimmy um, or James sent a small percentage of the original Bitcoin through a Bitcoin mixer. And he made those 750 Bitcoin, which again, back then was worth a lot less than it is today, um, harder to trace. So Jimmy converted that Bitcoin cash he received in 2017 back into Bitcoin. So he reinvested it, uh, generated in that uh, conversion, which made it harder to trace back to Silk Road. But it's also true that Bitcoin is inherently semi-anonymous, but that semi-anonymity, that's something that's a feature, right? A built-in uh, functionality of Bitcoin, not something that he created. Uh, and the overwhelming majority of the Bitcoin simply sat on the Bitcoin blockchain, such that anybody could have traced it back to Silk Road with any of the many publicly available web-based blockchain um, analysis tools. So they probably found him through C's Silk Road data. Um, so there was an investigation here, we're calling it, they're calling it a pre-search. So in 2019, the government and specifically the IRS and their criminal investigation unit or IRS CI uh, began investigating the whereabouts of about 53,000 directly forfeitable Bitcoin that was involved in or traceable to, to this guy Albrecht's crimes, right? So remember Albrecht was the founder of Silk Road who was put in jail for life. Uh, specifically, the government began investigating a September 2012 scheme, if you remember that time frame, to defraud Silk Road of at least approximately 50,000 Bitcoin from Silk Road's Bitcoin-based payment system and subsequent efforts to launder this Silk Road uh, Bitcoin. So that's directly associating Albrecht with uh, Song. So let's talk about the C's Silk Road data. The court documents tell us that in reviewing images of the Silk Road servers, forensic images, the IRS criminal investigation group analyzed computer databases which contained detailed Silk Road transactional records. And those servers included the following information, an account ledger, accounting ledger of all user activity, deposits and withdrawals, blockchain information about deposits and withdrawals, including which Silk Road addresses belong to which users, that's obviously key, uh, Bitcoin address information, Bitcoin transaction information, vendor buyer disputes and resolutions, all the things you would expect to get, right? Uh, error logs, gift codes, internal transfers, private messages between Silk Road users, shipping info, user account info, uh, including user account creation information, feedback, transaction history, um, including purchases, favorites, vendor items for sale and word filters. The Silk Road servers, transactional database included detailed information also regarding um, one of Zong's accounts that were actually traced to him. So like anything else, I, I guess what makes Bitcoin such a, I guess, safe transactional record also ultimately led directly to Zong because the detail is all there. So it was probably his first fund transfer where he initially learned of this bug where he could take out more than he put in in Silk Road's payment systems. And other accounts were also much more anonymous though. Yeah, all the other accounts that he made, he used fictitious names and so forth, but 
his first account when he actually found the bug was his account that he was using to buy cocaine or whatever it was he was buying on uh, the Silk Road at the time. So at this point, um, November 9th of 2021, there was a search warrant executed at Zong's Gainesville, Gainesville, Georgia home. Okay, and this is the point where the authorities started putting a person to this account that was stealing Bitcoin from the Silk Road. And you probably wonder, why do they even care? Why, why do authorities even care to go get this Bitcoin from one criminal that stole it from another criminal? Well, it's because the United States was owed all the money that it seized from the Silk Road. And since Zong stole it from the Silk Road, it's kind of like he took it from the government and the government wants to go get the rest of the money that they're owed because they pulled it from Holbert, if that makes sense. Right. So there's a search warrant at Zong's home. And this, this is the crate. This is just, I find it humorous and crazy. So when they get there, they seized approximately 53,500 Bitcoin, which in 2021 is a tremendous amount of money. It's not like it was in 2012 because things have split. The price of Bitcoin per Bitcoin has gone up and so forth. But if you stop there, you say, okay, 53,000 Bitcoin, that's a lot. Well, they also found something like $661,000 just in cash. He had some other physical Bitcoins that I'm not, I wasn't fully aware of, but there's actual like metal coins that you can get that he also had in a floor safe. So this motherfucker had a floor safe with a bunch of stuff in it. And I'm going to show you pictures to all this in a second. So be excited about this because I went out and found them. They had um, metal bars in there that were worth like, think like gold and silver, that type of metal bars in there that are worth money. Um, he had you know, one gold color coin, some silver gold color coins and so forth. Let me show you a picture of all this stuff. There's just too much for me to go through. I'm going to pull it up here. So for our video viewers, this is the investigative trail that I thought was most interesting. They went to Zong's house and they did their usual search and they went into a closet and they found a Cheetos popcorn tin and being the government they're gonna search absolutely everything they can find in this house so they open up this tin right and what's inside the tin it's a like a beach blanket wrapped around something and when they unwrapped that beach blanket there was a computer inside so this computer actually had all those bitcoin on it and seth and i have talked about this in season one and we'll talk about it again that cryptocurrency is it's a virtual coin it's not something that you well, I lie because he, I guess he has physical coins in his, his floor safe, but traditional cryptocurrency is just some, it's a number on a computer. And the reason why he has this computer that I'm showing you on your screen is that's where he took all those Bitcoin and he saved it onto this computer. So this is basically like holding all the 53,500 Bitcoin that they seized in their hand. It's on a computer. Let me show you some more. This is James Zong's floor safe. And you can see even without even squinting that he's got a, a bunch of fat stacks in there, but he's also got more stuff. He's got all these gold coins. 
So what I was stumbling through earlier, trying to tell you about all the coins and bars and things like that, this is a picture. This is actually what came out of his safe. So those actual physical gold coins, those are worth money too. And they found those. And I was just like, man, this guy was pretty much set. Here's another picture. Here's some more, um, the metal bars are kind of on the upper right of that picture. And then there's the, uh, just cellophane wrapped cash. If you're listening to audio, just imagine tons and tons of stacks of fat stacks of cash ah, being pulled. Stacks, please. <laughs> yeah, just all. And they basically, just like you've ever seen. And again, I'm saying this for the audio people. If you've ever seen those, um, arrest photos that police do where they're kind of standing in front of the loot that they caught. It's kind of like that. They spread all this stuff out that they found in his safe across the table and took a picture of it. And it looks pretty darn immense. All right. So now we're at the early November, 2021 timeframe. There's a search warrant issued for Zong's Gainesville, Georgia home. Same search warrant. Yeah. Incidentally, I didn't know there was a Gainesville, Georgia. I know there's a Gainesville, Florida because my wife is from there. But apparently there are several Gainesville's down south. So law enforcement seized around 50,000 and a half Bitcoin. And they give you a very specific number here uh, because I guess that level of granularity matters given the value of Bitcoin. Uh, but then it was all valued even in 2021 at over 3.36 billion with a B dollars. And I want to make this very clear. This seizure was then the largest cryptocurrency seizure in the history of the U.S. Department of Justice, but not just don't let that shock you because crypto is fairly recent, right? It was the second largest financial seizure by the DOJ ever. So that is really just kind of giving you an idea that this single soul kid from Georgia was directly related to one of the largest financial crimes by volume in the history of the United States. The government is seeking to forfeit collectively around 51,680 Bitcoin. Zong's 80% interest in this company called RE&D Investments, LLC, which is a Memphis-based company with apparently substantial real estate holding. You can buy a lot of real estate, Jones, with over $3 billion. Did you know that? Yeah. Um, and 661,000 uh, in cash seized from Zong's home and various metals. I guess those are some of the, uh, you know, the shrink-wrapped um, uh, valuable uh, um, gold or whatever was uh, in his home. All right. So if we flash forward to March, 2022, I thought this was pretty interesting. And I, I made a slide in my notes just for this. You imagine now Seth just said the government came in and basically says, we get all your shit to Zong because he made a lot of money off of there. So we're talking $3.4 billion worth of money. Zong didn't stop there. In March 2022, he's like, hey, uh, I got some other Bitcoin that I made too. I'm just going to voluntarily surrender another thousand Bitcoin to you too for the crimes that I did. And you're probably wondering, where did he get that Bitcoin and why is he surrendering it? Well, my friend, I'm going to have to tell you that you're going to have to come back for E-Crime Bites, Act Number Two, The Arrest, because we will find out why he is in possession of more Bitcoin than what he just stole. So I hope you enjoyed this real quick Act Number One of E-Crime Bites, and we're gonna pick up um, a day or two after this. So be looking back at our playlist, and we're gonna continue on with the arrest.